We have the call to worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let us bow our hearts and heads in sound of preparation for worship. Let us pray. As we are here this evening, God above, as we are rejoicing in your mercy upon us, God, and the rain and the moisture and the cool air, Lord. And of course, above all, for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Even, God, if we had none of the physical blessings, Lord, may we always be prepared to worship you and honor your name, God, and to bow before you. We bring our work before you, Lord, God above. We bring the number of work requests and prayers that we have, Lord, for those who are seeking out new jobs, new additional jobs. Give them wisdom and insight, Lord, and perseverance to do the right thing. And above all, to trust in you no matter the outcome. We pray, Lord, for those with hard work situations, hard coworkers, hard bosses, God, that they would persevere until they can find new work or be able to change their circumstances, God. And again, if nothing happens, Lord, may they trust in you and do their best, Lord, in spite of uh, the difficulties around them and uh, people who are not there to support them, God, although that can be certainly frustrating as a number of us have experienced that, Lord. And we are thankful, God, indeed, for the employment that we have and the monies that we gain from this, God, in, in this weak economy. Uh, we pray, God, it would not get worse, uh, but rather, Lord, you would sustain it, Lord, especially for your people, God, for fellow Christians at our church and our sister churches and other churches here and across this nation, God. We don't desire for our, uh, our fellow Christians to struggle economically, to struggle financially, God. So we pray that you would be with them and help them be wise in their work situation uh, and in their finances as well, Lord, and to persevere and do the right thing as best they can, God. Help them, Lord, have them, give them wisdom and insight how to deal with work situation, how to deal with lack of work or too much work, God, and to get advice from those who have experience and wisdom around them, God. We pray, Lord, for our state. We pray for our cities and counties in which we find ourselves in, Lord, uh, that we would have just laws, any unjust laws would be overthrown, God, and that we would have leaders who want to do the right thing and will do the right thing, God, and you would hold back uh, the wicked presumption of those who wish to uh, flaunt wickedness, God, and will not lead us, God, but rather wish to cannibalize us and use us and abuse us, Lord, for their own personal gain. So we read about a number of times, God, sadly, within Israel itself. And so, Lord, we see many of these sins, of course, in our own lifetime, God. So we ask, Lord, above, especially protection of Christians, uh, for Christians, Lord, uh, who will stand for the truth and not make excuses that they would not be harassed by the state or harassed by locals, God, especially those of their own businesses, Lord, and just Christians, God, in general, minding their own business, as we are called in Peter, God, to work uh, quietly, to, as we used to say, keep our nose clean, and uh, to mind our own business, as it were, insofar as we can. And certainly, God, we pray for our sanctification, both individually and collectively as a church here, Lord, to be more like you, to be set aside from the wickedness of this world, from gross violations of the law of God, and that we would flee to you and cling to you. Be thankful for the Holy Spirit that we have, God, that gives us desire uh, to be more like Jesus, uh, to be more in accordance to your word, to be aligning our hearts, minds, and thoughts, and words, Lord, in accordance to the law of God. Help us, we pray, in a day and age that mocks us and make fun of our prudish ways, they say, Lord, uh, but rather, God, to rejoice that we are uh, being persecuted for your namesake, God, that is, they hate us, and they hate you, Lord, although we wish they would not hate us, nor you, but nevertheless, God, may we continue to be on your side, that is, that we would follow you and not listen to the calls of this world to draw us away from you. Our Lord and Savior, we pray for this week to be a fruitful week, one day at a time, God, to do our callings before you, no matter what our feelings are, Lord, to do our responsibilities and duties, God. Take care of our families, 
to take care of one another. In name alone we pray for your mercies upon us this week and this evening. Amen. We thank you, God, for these tithes and offerings with the ability to give them. Use them, we pray, for your glory and for the good of the church. Amen. Let us turn to Psalm 23. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. With this psalm, Lord, a well-known psalm, a famous psalm in our day and age, at least among the conservative churches, we ask, God, that we would see it anew, and with encouragement, God, during any difficult times we find ourselves in, Lord, to know that you are with us here to provide and to protect us, and ultimately to bring us with you in heaven, to dwell with you in the house of the Lord forever. In your name alone we pray. Amen. It is a famous psalm. Famous psalm for many of us. We probably have most of it memorized. We find a beautiful metaphor of our God and Savior. He is not a distant Lord like the pagan so-called gods. He is a God who cares for us. He provides and protects us. But instead of saying those colorless words, God is here to protect and provide, David uses a vivid series of pictures, a famous picture of provision and protection in action. We see God as our shepherd. In these uncertain and fearful times, we need this psalm, perhaps more than we realize. The Lord is my shepherd. The first verse. What does that mean? What is a shepherd? For us, see, folk, we don't quite fully understand. I have to read about these things. I don't know anything about shepherding. The most I ever had was a dog. Well, we had two dogs, um, two cats, and duck backyard for a little bit. I wasn't hurting the ducks. He didn't do much of the ducks back there. That's all I know. I don't know what it's like to be out there in the wild trying to take care of animals that are dumber than dogs, I hear. I've been told that sheep, I've read that sheep are very dumb, very needful. That's why you have to have a shepherd. You have to watch over them. At least dogs can kind of take care of themselves. They go feral, yes, but they can take care of themselves. Sheep, they don't have those kind of teeth. They don't have those kind of abilities. They need help. We need help, and God is our helper. That's the picture we see here. What does a shepherd do? You can describe this in various and sundry ways, to be sure, but I think the simplest is what we have here, and what is easy, I think, to divide here, a twofold fashion. A shepherd provides, and a shepherd protects. A shepherd provides, and a shepherd protects. And those will be the two next points. The shepherd who provides, of course, finds a good place to eat, good food and shelter. We see that in the imagery here. He protects as well. He defends against wild animals, against false shepherds who wish to steal the sheep. You got the good sheep. We want better sheep. We're going to take your sheep when you're not looking tonight. Something like that. We know the stories in the Old Testament with David, who was a sheep herder, a shepherd, who took care of sheep, protected them and provided for them. Shepherds, in other words, are caring and hardworking, and God is our great shepherd. This is what we are reading here when we read, the Lord is my shepherd. 
He is for us. He provides for us. And he protects us, brothers and sisters. God is our great shepherd. He gives us food for our body and food for our soul. That's the provisions. And he protects us from enemies without the world and the devil and the enemy within our own flesh and own temptations and weaknesses. Now, what a shepherd does not do, as a reminder again, in the day and age in which we find ourselves in, and part of preaching is to equip you, to remind you, to prepare you, to defend you. I think you know this already. The shepherd is not here to give you warm feelings, right? That's not what the church is called to do. That's not what God, our shepherd, does. That's not what this picture here is of the shepherd. Although you may get warm feelings from it, that's fine. But if you don't, that's not God's fault. Not what his purpose is as a shepherd. He's not here, of course, to support you no matter what. We know that's a big problem. We have lots of lawlessness these days uh, in America and even in the church, where he never, they believe God just apparently never disciplines you or gives you demands. That's not the picture here uh, at all in the sense of, it's not the emphasis of the shepherd here, that he's just here to always kiss your boo-boo, make things wonderful for you, and have no demands for you, like he's a big Santa Claus. And the emphasis is on provisions, of course, and that's a good thing, and upon protection, and that's a good thing, but it's not certainly anywhere else in the Word of God, nor here, that kind of a twisted picture that we have, unfortunately, in America. And lastly, before I get to the other two points, the Lord our provider and the Lord our protector, is that second word you have before you, Lord, right? Remember, it's all in capital letters, at least in the NKJV and the KJV. I really don't recall what it is in other translations. I don't use them, the ESV and whatnot. It's all cap. It means the covenant-keeping God. The Lord, not just creator of heaven and earth, but the Lord God who deigned to come to earth and make a covenant, an agreement with you and with him. A gracious agreement, an agreement with a promise, a promise to save you in spite of yourselves. He is our covenant-keeping God. This is our shepherd, brothers and sisters. This is the one who cares for us. And we see that caring in the fact that he gave us a covenant. He could have just said, look, I'm God, that's, that's sufficient. But he went one step further and says, I'm going to make it formal and clear. Make a covenant through Christ Jesus, who is himself, and Isaiah is called a covenant, because he embodies the covenant. And we have the word of God explaining this covenant to us. And that we are part of the covenant and gives us evidences of that because God knows we are weak. And so he stoops down to our level, like when you stoop down to a baby, go down to the baby level, talk to the baby and baby talk. God does that with us. Not to make fun of God, but to show that that's the difference between us and him. It's greater than that, of course. It's more like an animal or a worm. And he is greater than that. He's not just a distant creator who made a personal covenant with us, but is a personal covenant, personal God through his son, Jesus Christ, our shepherd who cares for us even to this very hour. We see that in here in the second point, the Lord is my provider, verses 1 through 3. Although we see overtones of that in the other verses as well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Want, I think all of us know, or most of us know, is that old word, meaning lack. Not want as in desire. I shall not ever desire, but I shall not lack. It's an older word. I shall not lack what is needful for me. Obviously, what is lacking here is not what we wish to fill into it. He leaves it empty, right? This is pretty common in the Bible. We assume that you know what it's talking about, and we do sit down and think about it. I shall not want what? 
anything? Well, it's not anything because Abraham, he was given many blessings, but he also missed some peace. He had (laughs) other women in his life besides his wife. They all did. But that wasn't the case. He was lacking something there. What's the lacking here? Thou shalt, we shall not lack. I shall not want. Want what? I shall never want the spiritual salvation and the heaven promised to me. Being a follower of God does not mean all your problems disappear. Remember, we have brothers and sisters in Africa and the Middle East who have bigger problems than we do. They don't have a roof and home. Uh, they're being attacked. The promise isn't for that. The promise is for the soul and the salvation that we have. Now, certainly true, God does provide for us in many ways. Our bodies, here we are, building. We, we got back to this room quicker than we, we thought would happen. We're grateful for that. That was part of God's plan. That was part of God making up for our lack, things that we're missing. But that's not the promise. That is, that's not a guarantee, the physical blessings. They do come. And we're reminded, of course, of putting things in proper perspective by Paul and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Of course, we may even be missing those, or at least our brothers and sisters are. So I shall not want, that is, primarily and forcibly for our soul. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides, beside the still waters. The green pastures, of course, are as a picture of places of goodness, for food, of comfort, of safe space. They use that word for a while. I haven't heard it in a while, right? We need a safe space. Do Christians get a safe space, thank you very much? Like our own churches, perhaps, our own homes? Should be. That's one of the dangers with churches trying to woo the world so much that the church no longer is a safe space for Christians uh, because they're always kowtowing to unbelievers to get them in the front door, although we wish them to be here. The nice, comfortable, safe space. This is a picture I have, you know, all the movies we've seen, and they have the great cinematography, and the lighting's just right. The sun peeks through the trees down to the peaceful lake with the sheep or the deer and all of us. This is, this is where I want to live. That's the image here of the tranquility. The tranquility, of course, I think is uh, here with still waters. It's not agitated. The waters are calm. And we have that in parts of our life, again, by God's special providence for his church. There are safe spaces for our body, our home, and our neighborhood. Safe space for our soul, the peace of conscience and the knowledge of God's love and his word. The green pastures of the preaching of the word of God. The tranquil waters that we have and the comfort of safe space among Christians in prayer. All of these things. He doesn't, again, specify what exactly is he talking about, Pastor. This is a very broad picture of beauty, of being near God and how he takes care of us, especially our soul. The Bible and preaching are our green pastures as well. The tranquility, overlapping word pictures of peace and safety here, refreshing place, undisturbed by sin, at least not disturbed overtly by sin, because sin is still here with us. In many ways, it's an idyllic, picturesque, perfect place that he's painting here. We don't fully have it here. Even our sanctification is incomplete, isn't it? We still struggle with sin. We don't fully have uh, still waters that are never agitated by things around us. We have it in larger measure than we had before we were saved, especially for our soul and our conscience. And ultimately, a picture here, this is a picture of heaven. In heaven, brothers and sisters, when he says, I shall not want, it will be fulfilled not only in justification, which can either be added to nor taken away, but your sanctification, 
You will no longer sin. You don't want to sin. You will be tricked by sin. And for our bodies, what's the resurrection? But no longer having want. Sin is gone. Sicknesses are gone. Food is plenty. Plentiful. We see that in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. All this food, all this prosperity, cities upon cities of gold, anything you ever wanted and needed, it will be fulfilled, just not immediately right now in full measure, but it will come when Christ returns. Remember that. And he leads us. He leads me beside the still waters. The shepherd or our chief is the word there. Do you recall on Wednesday night in the book of Hebrews? Christ is called our leader or chief, specifically one who trailblazes ahead of you. It's quite interesting there in the Greek. And although that's not technically the word here, it's not the word used, it's just he leads. He's still ahead of us. He's making way and working through the providence, of course, and preserving our soul. Restores us. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's quite interesting here with that word restores. I've seen it a number of times uh, in my studies because it comes up over and over again. It's a very frequently used word. The word often is translated turn or return in the sense of repentance. Turn me, O Lord, and then I will be turned. We read that as a prophecy a few times, I think in Ezekiel or Isaiah. That's this word here. And notice what's going on here. Who restores your soul, brothers and sisters? Who gives you the gift of repentance? That's what it's saying here. We do repent. I've mentioned that before. The Bible says that. You do believe. But belief itself is a gift of God. Repentance itself is a gift of God. 1 Timothy 2.25, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And that's what the psalm echoes that. It is God. He is the active agent here. He restores you, and therefore you are restored. Turn me, O Lord, and I shall be turned. So it says. And that's a wonderful thing. His care and love does not stop at our will. Right? People like to take the book of Revelation and twist it into this feminine Savior who's tapping at the door of your heart very gently. He's not sure what he can do if you don't let him do something. Some of us grew in those circles, right? You've got to let go and let God. It's true in the sense that you're supposed to submit to God. You're supposed to repent, restore, and turn back to him, yes. But you need to plead that he would turn you back to him so that you would be fully returned. You've got to depend upon God. It is Jesus Christ who blows down the door of resistance and rebellion and changes the heart. He restores our soul. He restores your souls, brothers and sisters. He cares enough as a shepherd to protect us, not only from enemies without, but enemies within our own stubborn hearts. He provides for us salvation. He provides for us a repentant, changed heart and leads us down the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. A beautiful picture of a Savior who provides, not just for our body, but especially for our soul. And then the last point, verses 4 through 6. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This is another reason why this psalm is so popular with us, so dramatic and strong and resonates with our heart. This is something we want to read on our deathbed. Look at the words. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's certainly what's happening when you're on your deathbed. But even now, brothers and sisters, in this world we find ourselves in, we are in the valley of the shadow of death. Death is all around us. Change is around us. Danger is around us. It's a picture of a dangerous mountain environment because a valley is created by mountains. Shadows come from the mountains themselves, right? Walking down to the dangerous part of the hills and mountains of Israel. And life can be that way, of course, difficult and scary at times. Loss of loved ones, our own impending death, old age. And this is a reminder God is with us. 
no matter what. The sheep don't feel it. The first reaction is fear. They may smell something. They certainly feel the oppression of darkness in the dark valley of death. God tells us here, through the mouth of David, no matter where you walk, no matter how dangerous it looks, I am with you. I am your shepherd, and you should fear nothing. Fear no evil. Satan has lost, and death has no sting. God is our Savior and Shepherd, our great Shepherd. That's what we have to meditate upon during trying times and seasons, brothers and sisters. Then he says, I will not fear, or uh, rather, I will fear no evil. Now, I don't believe he's saying you will never have fear. I hope you have fear of God, right? So already you know, again, it's how language is. You have one word that says has multiple uses depending on context. In this context, he's not saying no fear, absolutely. Rather, the wrong kind of fear, or fear of Satan and sin more precisely. He wants them to be fearful of snakes and bears, or you will die. Would any of us call David a coward? Oh, you don't think he was, I'm sure he was scared, but he knew what he had to do. He had to overcome his fear. We all know this. You overcome your fear. It's still there. And you do the right thing in spite of it. He's not talking about that either. It's a natural fear you ought to have, or you're going to die young. Fear, the fear of God leaving you, perhaps. You're in this dark valley. Where's my Savior? Where's my shepherd? He says, I'm here, no matter where you are. Fear of Satan in the world? No, I'm here. They cannot steal your soul. They may take your body. Christ says, take your body. Cannot take For you are with me. Why? He's not afraid of him leaving him, of no evil, of bad things from the world and the devil coming upon his soul. For you are with, for what? What's he doing with me? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What's with the rod and the staff? Well, they're there to help you, to protect you, brothers and sisters. The crook to grab us away from trouble. Perhaps the other one's a larger staff to beat away lions and bears that come after us. In 2 Samuel 23, 31, to give you an idea of what these staffs were like, 2 Samuel 23, 21, we read, And he killed an Egyptian, one of the judges, a spectacular man, The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and so he went down to him with a staff, wrest the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. He used the staff to knock out the spear out of his hand and killed him with his own spear. So the staffs were useful if you knew what you were doing. For us, we're like, why doesn't he have a gun, right? (laughs) What's going on here? In that day and age, that's the imagery of a man who knew what he was doing, and he's protecting his sheep, and he used the right tool for protection of us from trouble. You've all seen the videos, you've all seen the imagery with the crook trying to grab the dumb sheep from the pit, runs away and runs into another pit. There's one on YouTube that does that. It goes right down the line of the pit, uh, the hole. And of course, protecting us from our enemies. Even death itself, God has subdued Jesus Christ, brothers and sister here, passed away. She knew, and her husband knew, the shepherd was with her, and she went into glory. She had no fear. God is with her. The table of plenty in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. So in the presence of my enemies, in other words, here they are. I'm in the valley of shadow of death. My enemies are surrounding me, the wolves and the bears and the lions. People pretending to be my friends. He was a friend who became my enemy. Right? We're reading the other Psalms. And God is protecting him such that he gives him bountiful blessings. He can sit there at the table and not have any concern or worry of his enemies taking him out. God's protecting him. 
The protection is not just a bare bones, you've got a wall, you're barely surviving, you're in the mud like in the war movies. No, he's, he's relaxed and he's having a feast in front of his enemies because God has conquered them and protected him. It's a picture of the staff protecting him from the enemies all around us. The enemies of our soul, of course, especially. We don't have, again, this promise like Israel of old did, where Russia or China can never take us out. Oh, no, no, we're going to take ourselves out, it looks like, at the rate we're going. But God will vindicate us and preserve our souls and our bodies, even again, at the resurrection. They will supposedly think they won the battle, but God will prepare a feast in eternity before him, before the enemies, and we shall rejoice in God. And so the picture here of eating in the table preparing a table of bountiful blessings in front of our enemies. Anointing the head with oil is a picture of prosperity. It's a, and it's a rich thing, an expensive thing to do. My cup runs over, right? Plenitude upon plenitude. I have so much wine. You know it's wine. That I can just waste it. Flow over. I'm just going to be able to drink it and enjoy my, myself while my enemies are not enjoying anything. The implication probably is they're in the judgment. Again, we see pictures of this and part of this on earth where God has preserved England, for example, in the great Spanish Armada of the 1583, I think it was, right? Swept away by the wind. That was God's special providence, and he protected England in spite of her sins, to be sure. But uh, they were more or less you know, determined, the leadership, to be a godly nation. And God had preserved America that way, but especially the church. Again, it wasn't the nation as such, but the members of the nation, the church, people trying to follow God and doing the right thing in his mercy. Those are foretastes of heaven, where we'll have complete victory and complete blessings, and our cups shall run over for eternity, brothers and sisters, and we'll be with our sister in eternity. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I just, when I read that, I have an instant picture because of the imagery here of waters, of green pastures, like walking through a trail, an echo lake perhaps, up behind the mountains. Idaho Springs. And every step you take, flowers pop up. They're just following you wherever you go. Wonderful things happen. That's the picture I have in my head here. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Again, it's a picture of blessing upon blessing of God. Blessing before us. He goes before us, we read earlier. And here he's, as it were, behind us. And the things that we touch are indeed blessed, even if they don't realize the blessing. People who have Christians are blessed that way insofar as the Christians speak of the truth. Witness the truth by their actions. Even if it's a reprimand, it's still truth. They don't accept it. I'm sorry. It's all a blessing. Everywhere we go, God's goodness is evident around us. A trail of goodness and mercy behind us. God is our shepherd. The whole point of the psalm is that God will take care of us, and that should comfort us in times of trouble. The best illustration of Psalm 23, of God as our shepherd, of course, is Christ himself. who was prophesied as our great shepherd. In Isaiah 40:11, we read, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That's what our Savior did on earth. And that's what he does for us now, brothers and sisters, for your soul, through the word of God and through the church. God carries us through this life. He is gentle and leads us towards heaven. We may push and complain like those sheep, bleeding as difficult sheep, but our shepherd knows better than we know ourselves. And he will guide us protect us. Don't go by your senses, by the faith implanted in your heart and the word of God, brothers and sisters. Our shepherd provides for us and protects us, and we know that we have evidence of that in our lives today, even this evening. 
as you have a building around you, comfortable chairs to sit on, and hearing the word of God and singing praises before his name, both provisions are there, body and soul, by God's providence. Especially see it in Christ himself in John 10, where we read Christ saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, and Christ gave his life for us. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my sheep. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. That's the kind of shepherd he is. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I and we, brothers and sisters, will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Gracious God, comfort our souls with this psalm, a psalm of promise that you are our shepherd and that we shall not want. We shall not want for our soul now. We shall not want ever for our bodies in the future. Precious God, help us, we pray, to be encouraged by this, to be comforted and comforted one another with this psalm. In your name alone we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.